Jesus. Just broke my chair. Starting this episode off hot, breaking my chair. Because why else, how else would I start? Other than putting my elbow through my chair, which is what I just did. That's good. Good thing I'm relocating studios soon. Get to get a new chair, because I just smashed this one to bits. Welcome to the episode, episode 75, featuring the great Dr. Kevin Peter Hand. Now, we all agree quarantining sucks, okay? But you know what would really suck? Being quarantined 390 million miles away underneath an ice sheet on a small moon orbiting around a giant gaseous planet. And that's what we're here to talk about today because it's very possible. It's in the realm of possibility that underneath the ice of Europa, there is some biodiversity, some creatures, some animals, some bacterium that has been quarantined underneath that ice for millions of years. And that's what we're here to talk to Kevin Peterhand about. Kevin Peterhand is a scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where he has served as Deputy Chief Scientist for Solar System Exploration and is leading an effort to land a spacecraft on the surface of Europa. So we talk about that today. How are we going to get there? What are we going to find? How do we know there's an ocean on Europa? I encourage you to go by Dr. Kevin Peter Hands. Nice name, by the way. Great name. I, I do the Donald Trump thing for some reason when I say the word great. My hands do the little, like, I don't even know how to describe it. The Mickey Mouse ears. I don't know what, to say. I don't know how, what it's called. But go check out his book. It's called Alien Oceans, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space. I read the entire book this past weekend. The entire thing, like 290 pages, sat down and I couldn't stop. It's a fantastic book and it goes through the science of how we know that there's water underneath the ice sheet of Europa. Not only is there water, there's salty water, which makes the discovery all more special, okay? Because it's possible that in that water, there is the constituents you need to form life as we know it. I encourage you to go buy his book, to go purchase the book, audiobook, ebook, hard copy, hardcover, whatever you want to do, okay? The links are below. Go check it out. It's, it's, I, I cannot speak highly enough of it. And I'm not getting paid to say this, okay? We talk about a ton of other stuff too. If you're a young scientist in your career, like I am, okay, then this is an insightful conversation to you because we talk about the career that Kevin Peterhand has had getting to where he is today trying he's worked in in many different institutions like SETI for example the SETI Institute where his whole career goal trajectory was to try to answer the question is there life out there in the universe historically it's been a tough goal to get funded because for whatever reason the public interest in science in astronomy in exploration of the solar system is not to put men on Mars it's not to put men on the moon and women of course women yes we accept everyone on the moon and Mars. Everyone can be a Martian. Everyone can be a Moonian. It's fine. It is what it is. Okay. But the public interest leads much greater in searching for life. So why don't we do it? Why haven't we gotten it done? Why is the last time we went out, set out in the solar system with the sole goal of searching for life was 40 years ago? Why is that the truth? And how do you push back against that? How do you get these projects funded? How do you get forward in your career? in this avenue we also talk a lot about consciousness if there was some biodiversity on europa what would they think what would they be like what does being able to look at the stars being able to look above being able to look out into the universe what does that do to human consciousness and what would animals that couldn't do that 
what would they be like? What if you couldn't look up? What if you lived underground? What if you had no concept that you were a great a part of a greater community of stars, of galaxies, of galaxy clusters, of universes full of billions of galaxies? What would that do to your ability to develop a consciousness? And what would that consciousness even be like? Okay, insightful conversation. We talk about a ton of other stuff. I hope you check it out. I hope you like the episode. Please let me know what you think. Disclaimer, okay? You know the disclaimer. If you listen to the show, you know it. We've had to say it 100,000 times. The opinions of Dr. Kevin Peter Hand are his opinions alone. Not JPL's, not NASA, not the Jet Propulsion Lab, not me, not you, not anyone else. Just him, okay? Just him. Now, you might say, Brendan, isn't that, isn't that what an opinion means? Yes, that is what an opinion means. But in today's day and age, we got to be careful, okay? Because you never know. Please rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, okay? If you want to explore Europa's moons, if you want to search for life, if you think it's out there, rate the show five stars. If you have a phone, an iPhone, an Apple iPhone, an iPhone X, an iPhone 11, an iPhone 9, an iPhone 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, if you have an iPod Shuffle, I don't care what kind of iPod you have. If you have an iPad, I don't, a MacBook Pro, don't care. Rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, okay? There's no excuse. There's no excuse. And if you don't do it, frankly, you don't deserve to listen to this podcast. So shut it off. If you have an Apple device and you're not and you are and you haven't already clicked the five star button, shut the show off because you don't deserve to have it in your earballs. Okay? And yeah, I accidentally said earballs instead of eyeballs. And I'm and I'm leaving it in. And I'm leaving it in. Go to the website, thestateoftheuniverse.com. Please mailing list. You know the drill. Instagram, Twitter. Please follow us. Please share the show. Let me know what you thought. Subscribe on YouTube. The whole the whole deal. You know everything. Okay? One further disclaimer. If you listened to the show before, or if this is your first time listening, I make sure the audio is pristine. You can hear it now. I do a lot of work, a lot of editing into making sure it's good, it's fantastic, it sounds studio quality. Something weird happened in this episode. Number one, my recorder failed. It failed. I don't know what happened to it. It just failed. It died. It doesn't work. The audio on it is garbage. Now I have redundancies built in. But for some reason, even on those redundancies, the audio came into the recorder a tiny bit muffled. I don't know why that happened. And I hope that doesn't detract from you wanting to listen to it. And I hope that that doesn't take away any any information or it makes you want to turn it off. Please don't leave a bad review saying the audio sucks because in general, we do good audio here. But unfortunately, I can't go back in time and, and fix that. So I, I, don't, I don't know. It bums me out. It severely bums me out. So I apologize. It's possible that you'd never even notice if you don't. To me, it murders my soul. It rips my soul out of my body. So give it up for Dr. Kevin Peterhand. Bring me back to the the beginning, Kevin. Vermont. You were raised in Vermont. Is that true? Uh, that's right. Born and raised in the Green Mountains of Vermont. Under Are that. you a hiker? Big hiker? Yeah, hiking, skiing, was on skis. Uh, both my parents worked in the ski industry, um, uh, Stratton Mountain uh, and Bromley Ski Area, which are just a, a little bit away from Manchester, Vermont, which is where I grew up. That's and, awesome. Uh, my, oh, sorry. Well, uh, I was just gonna say, instead of having a, a babysitter when we were young, uh, my older brother and I uh, were just brought out to um, ski school. And so yeah, from that's a, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, so, I, I, sorry. This is the this is the issue with with talking over the internet is there's like a one second delay 
right? right. So we never know when the other person's done talking. Um, <laughs> it's a problem. I it's a problem that is common in in podcasting over the Skype or the internet. Um, yeah. In a perfect world, we we would know. But yeah, I'm a I'm a huge hiker, and ever since I moved to upstate New York, my wife and I have been slowly uh, hitting away at the Adirondack 46 and the Catskill 35. And we're moving into the Green Mountains sooner or later. So um, I was curious if you were you were you were uh, a hiker. Yeah, yeah, I uh, highly recommend doing the Long Trail in Vermont. Obviously, the Appalachian Trail comes up from the south and arcs across uh, Vermont and into New Hampshire. Uh, and so, um, but for part of the Appalachian Trail, uh, it connects with the Long Trail, and the Long Trail basically bisects Vermont. And goes up and over uh, many, many beautiful mountains and through valleys and stuff. So I highly recommend that. Yeah, we, we will have to do that. Um, we're, yeah, we're trying – we're going to Peru in, in June, hopefully, if the coronavirus doesn't uh, ruin our trip. Hopefully that does not happen uh, for the sake of me, my bank account, and the millions of people that are affected. Um, now, now, so, now, to be clear, you're going to the country of Peru or Peru, Vermont? Oh. Yes, this is confusing because there's a Peru, New York, too. No, we're going to uh, Peru, the country, Peru. Yeah. Uh, the, the hiking there, from what I hear, is phenomenal. But if something happens, trust me, Peru, Vermont is also very beautiful. So you can, you can – uh... All right, change it up. Yeah, I don't think Peru, New York is anything. I think I don't think there's anything. I think there might be a Domino's or – that's about it. Um, but anyway, it's, it's very interesting to me um, that you got a degree in psychology. Mm. Right. You got a degree yeah. in physics, but you also got a degree in psychology. So That's, I'm curious when this fascination started for you and why you pursued a degree in psychology. Yeah, well, uh, you ever hear of the brain in the vat, um, the, the, uh, the sort of thought experiment about consciousness? of, uh, um, and, and I think I first read this in the opening to Daniel Dennett's classic book, Consciousness Explained. And, uh, at the time I was, I believe in high school and, uh, and I just got captivated with, uh, the conundrum of consciousness, so to speak. Uh, and, um, and the more I tried to understand human consciousness and, and, uh, how we perceive our environment and our world, uh, the more that began to intersect with my interest in the search for life beyond earth, and I'll also credit, I'm pretty sure it's episode 11, there's a chance it's episode 10, but I'm pretty sure it's episode 11, uh, Persistence of Memory uh, from Cosmos, from Carl Sagan's Cosmos, mm -hmm. goes into uh, whales and dolphins and, and uh, aquatic mammal communication. And I think it was basically the convergence of my interest in the search for life elsewhere, my uh, intrigue in human consciousness and my desire to understand how other organisms, other intelligent organisms might communicate that led me to study psychology at Dartmouth. And, um, and so I, I took classes on, um, sense, uh, sensory perception where I got a chance to study other modalities like echolocation and, and, um, sensing the polarization of light and, all this stuff that we humans are not privy to, but which if you think about life elsewhere and possibly intelligent life elsewhere, it could on its planet evolve to have these senses that we do not have. 
And I wonder what that may do in terms of forming their uh, consciousness, their philosophy, their science, uh, their religion, etc., their art. Um, so, so that was the uh, the link. Um, and I was fortunate enough that there was a um, a professor. Um, oh goodness, his name is escaping me right now. That's a that's a pity. Um, It'll uh, it'll probably come to me in five minutes, but uh, <laughs> many professors there thought I was uh, not crazy for thinking about this stuff. They 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 were intrigued by it, um, but there was one professor in particular who uh, was particularly interested in this topic, and uh, we had a lot of fun brainstorming on it. Yeah, that that's super interesting, and we're going to talk a lot about life, biology, and the variance it could have in the universe. But I'm really curious about this concept as it comes up right now, the idea of consciousness. Do you think that when you study the consciousness of a human being, that that is a universally applicable um, study across – let's imagine there's a, an alien civilization um, you know, some 45,000 light years away or something in – I don't know, in, in a different galaxy or in the small Magellanic cloud, wherever. There's a, there's a different – alien civilization that has achieved consciousness, that has achieved technological advancement. Our biology might be different. And, and like I said, we're going to get into the biological differences, so we won't spend too much time on them now. We're, we're, we're going to talk about that. Do you think that consciousness is different? Or do you think that the consciousness is is maybe uniform across the the different um, – and, and, and keep in mind, Kevin, when I say that, I literally don't know what I mean by the consciousness is different. It's similar to a quote you have in the book. It's, it's – uh, geez, I, I wish I would have wrote the quote down. But but the quote is in essence you – it's hard to think of things um, that you uh, – OK, a good way to say it is you don't know what you don't know, right? Um, so yeah, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it's uh, I love this topic. And uh, as you said, it's one that I go into uh, in the book um, – uh, the, the latter chapters of the book, I get a little more specul- speculative about um, uh, about what might be going on out there. And part of what I love to ponder um, is, you know, how would consciousness uh, and the sort of neuroscience of an ice-covered deep ocean like Europa's or Enceladus, etc., how would intelligence – evolve on such a world and, and i don't just mean like you know tool using etc but you know think about it we have uh, uh our brain has been so closely linked to the concept of the cosmos in the past let's call it one and a half million years of of our uh, uh migration towards becoming homo sapien um it, it, the night sky looking up looking beyond Earth, looking over the horizon, all of these things have been so integral to how we have become the humans that we are. And now imagine that you're an intelligent European octopus. You barely have eyes. You know, maybe you have uh, that kind of sensory perception to to seek out hydrothermal vents, but you have no. You, you can't see the stars above. Uh, when you go up, when you look up, all that you come into contact with is the ice shell. And you don't even know what it means to have an ice shell, but you know that this thing is creaking and cracking, uh, and you might detect some pattern to it, which we would then 
be able to link to the fact that Europa is orbiting Jupiter. But this intelligent octopus would have no idea. It would have sort of a, a religion, a philosophy, a science based on the tidal cracking and creaking. Uh, but it would not have stars to look at. It would not have a night sky to beckon it to explore beyond its home planet. And so, like you're saying, when we think about consciousness and what aspects of that might be universal, I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating to consider, right? Um, you've got to think that, um, the sort of, <laughs> to use a physics term, but in a different, completely different way, uh, the Hamiltonian uh, exists. Uh, and by that, I mean the Shakespeare Hamiltonian uh, or, or ha- Hamlet, <laughs> Hamletonian. Uh, you know, I think, therefore, I am. Uh, and uh, and so an intelligent creature at some point would have a sense of identity and perhaps be able to develop questions based on this idea of self and otherness. But how does their philosophy uh, then get informed by their environment? Ah, it's uh, it's fascinating. So, you, yeah, you've made me think about something that I didn't think about when I read the book, actually, which is that, um, and, and maybe you said this, and I, and I just somehow missed it, or I didn't get it, or I was too in my own thoughts. But I think our identity to our consciousness is very related to the fact that we can look at the stars. That's right. Because when when we think about our consciousness, we think like these these concepts come up almost intuitively. Like, are we the only conscious beings? Are there beings out there that are also conscious? That it's almost like that's built into our definition of consciousness. Being aware of the universe. Um, yeah. a, would a European octopus have that? By the way, in the book, I kept reading European. I could not do it. I was like, why <laughs> European? European? I could not yeah. stop. Um, yeah, that is one 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 challenge with uh, Europa. Um, uh, it's perhaps a little easier to say than Enceladus. I often get you know Enceladus and uh, uh, enchiladas, etc. But oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. So so you know the quote that I have at the beginning of that uh, chapter twelve. I'm just looking at the book here, and uh, that's the chapter that's called the Octopus and the Hammer, mm-hmm. and uh, that that chapter goes through this kind of speculation on what it would mean to have an intelligent civilization uh, within an ice-covered ocean. And and so the quote there is uh, from uh, Slarty Bartfast, the, the character in, in uh, Douglas Adams' Life, the Universe and Everything, mm-hmm. uh, where um, uh, it opens up, imagine never even thinking, quote, we are alone, end quote, simply because it has never occurred to you to think that there is any other way to be and there, it, they're on a planet that's covered with a thick atmosphere, and so they just can't see the stars. But in these ice-covered uh, ocean worlds, uh, a similar psychological limitation would uh, would hold. Yes, it is an absolutely fascinating. Those were probably for me, and and being that I am a, a I don't know if I'm allowed to call myself an astrophysicist yet. I do. It might be against the rules. Um, you might have what, a, is that a, where are you? What's your? Uh, uh, I don't even know where are you at in your studies and everything. Oh, I'm a PhD candidate at, at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Oh, fantastic! Um, I'm a few years deep, so I don't know if that qualifies me as a uh, as um, astrophysicist yet. Um, <laughs> you're, you're getting there. You're almost card carrying. So that's true. So I I say it. I don't know. Some some old timers might not like that. They might uh, smack me on the hands with rulers or something. I'm not sure. Um, anyhow. 
this is a fascinating subject, and this was for me the most fascinating aspect of the book is because you made me think about these concepts that I, I guess I hadn't thought about since I watched Cosmos by Carl Sagan mm-hmm. or since I read the book um, because one thing I notice about physics, about doing physics, doing astrophysics is it's really easy to become disconnected from the big picture. You know, when, when you're a when you're a teenager, when you're a kid, when you're in high school, when you're reading the the Carl Sagan's and the Brian Greens and the and the the Stephen Hawking's of the world, you you only know the big picture. You don't know the intricate details. I remember when I was in in high school, I thought the intricate details were algebra problems. I was like, they're always talking about theories of everything. Well, I, in my mind, I literally pictured like quadratics. Like we just need to solve quadratics, and no one knows how to do it, and I'm just gonna learn. Uh, astrophysics and I'm going to figure out how to do the quadratics and you get so into problem solving in the scientific community that you lose sight of the big picture so I, I really like the concepts like this that bring you back to to why you got into it to begin with and and I want to go back um we talked about it briefly but but when exactly do did you make a decision and say I really want to like my goal my career goal is to search for life outside of earth well, it, it it began as a as a young child uh, in Vermont. I, I was building model rockets, Estes rockets, uh, in um, elementary school and uh, on up through high school. Uh, I, I got uh, very intrigued by magic and juggling and all those uh, uh, stupid human skills of of the the circus arts. And I actually had my own. Uh, uh, magic company and, and used to go around the Northeast uh, doing magic really? and juggling shows. Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh, that's, yeah. that might, that's awesome. Yes. Uh, I bought my first car with that money. Uh, uh, my, uh, my buddy Dave McIntyre and I would, yeah, we went, we went up, uh, various places in New York. I don't think we made it up to Rochester, but, um, uh, yeah, basically around and about, um, New York, Boston, Connecticut, New Hampshire, I think maybe a couple in Maine and all throughout Vermont, uh, everything from birthday parties to, um, uh, senior living homes to, uh, conferences and stuff. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I got fascinated with Houdini and uh, there again, there's sort of this convergence of, um, critical thinking, skeptical thinking, um, uh, Houdini being a, uh, um, uh, a, a wonderful illusionist and magician, but also an incredible critic of those who tried to fool the, uh, the, um, uh, those in society who were, were not as well trained in critical thinking. And yeah, so I, uh, I, I loved, uh, the night sky and magic and all these things and, and, went off to college. Well, actually I was going to go to Cornell. Uh, I got into Cornell and, and went over there and, and similar to what you were saying about keeping the big picture in mind. Uh, I w- was excited about Cornell because of Carl Sagan. And mm-hmm. when I went out there, I visited the physics department and was also very interested in complexity theory, chaos theory, etc. And I ended up getting the chance to talk to a physics professor there, and he was wonderfully nice, but he was also a little bit um, uh, gruff, let's say, and and uh, kind of dissuaded me against being interested in the search for life. And he said, uh, you know, you'll never work with Carl Sagan if you come here. You'll never even see him and all that stuff. 
so that was a bit of a downer. Um, and then I got into Dartmouth. They told you that at your at your visit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's. <laughs> so, <laughs> Imagine how many thousands of kids were applying though to work with Carl Sagan. You know. That, that's right. Um, now, now the beauty, the beauty, and sort of the symmetry of the universe. If uh, if I can uh, retroactively impart some symmetry on it. Uh, um, at the time when I would have been an undergrad at Cornell, uh, Christopher Chiba um, was a postdoc there uh, with Carl Sagan. And had I gone as an undergrad, I probably would have worked with Chris um, as an undergrad, helping him out on something. Uh, fast forward to the year 1999 or 2000. And Chris and I end up working together out at the SETI Institute, and and he ended up being my PhD advisor. Um, so it, uh, uh, he and I either would have worked together back in the in the 90s or the 2000s, depending on which um, which of the the parallel universes I uh, I went on the Cornell <laughs> Dartmouth one. <laughs> and you still couldn't get the Carl Sagan. He was a loser. Well, well, so uh, I, I went to Dartmouth, and and I was. Um, uh, in the physics department there and excited about the search for life. And, and I met Carl Sagan when he came and visited Dartmouth. And, and that was, um, uh, that was great. I was TAing, uh, a, an advanced astrophysics class in the physics department and, uh, had this, this wonderful eye-opening experience. Um, at the time, as it was happening, it was a little frustrating, but then a light bulb went off in my head. Um, so he came to Dartmouth to give a lecture, but he also spent some time uh, with our class of roughly, let's call it 15 to 20 students, this uh, this sort of upper level uh, astrophysics class. And um, very few of the students actually had any appreciation for who he was. Um, and meanwhile, I, of course, was, um, uh, you know, this, this Morning. was, yeah, right. So, yeah. so this was incredibly exciting to me. Uh, and, uh, but as TA, I was in the back and, and when it came time to ask questions, um, I raised my hand and I, I kept on trying to ask questions. Um, but, he kind of ignored my raised hand and picked on some other students. Um, and after a little while, I realized that he was um, picking out uh, uh, women and other students in the audience who didn't have their hands raised. And he was kind of prompting them to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I, I just found that very powerful. I learned from him in that, in that experience of, of, Know, being a good teacher and, and seeking out the students who might be inhibited or otherwise not um, uh, sought after for their opinions or or, uh, or questions on things. Um, so it's a it's a a nice memory that I have of of watching him in action. That's awesome. Uh, my personality, Kevin, is I would have took a selfie with the Carl Sagan and I would have <laughs> mailed it to that pr- professor at Cornell that uh, told you that you'd never meet him or work with him. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. Well, now keep in mind this is long before selfies. <laughs> and so, oh, I would have got out my Super Eight, and I would have. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so anyhow, um, I the reason I asked the question to begin with is is when you you found a fascination with this is because I was just talking to Dr. Moore McLaughlin on the podcast the other day, and um, 
we were talking about a concept I talk about a lot on here, which is like, when do you as a human discover your big question? We're all working uh, on a question, right? Yeah, that's a great and yep, keep going. Yeah. And uh, what I tend to notice amongst most people in science in general, and I've talked to people in, in pretty much all ranges of science by this point, is that a lot of them don't have yep. a big question per se. What yeah. instead they have is a scientific inquiring mind and they apply it to sort of whatever pops up in their life. Like, you know, like, Oh, I'm interested in pulsars. You know, that, that's kind of her story is like, Oh, I'm interested in neutron stars, pulsars, black holes. You begin going down the road and you, and you make a career out of it. But realistically, if I would have gotten to biology three years ago for, well, what it, Oh geez, I'm old. Um, <laughs> if I would have gotten to biology six years ago when I, when I first went to college, um, then I would have uh, probably been a biologist studying mm. some biological problem. And so I'm curious, like, there's are, there are some people, though, that have a question innate to them. They feel the need to spend a career answering it. They, they don't want to be scientists. They want to answer a question. And I'm curious where you fall on that spectrum. Yeah, this, this is a great topic, and I want to uh, spend some time on it because I think it's uh, depending on where your listeners are in their careers. I think it's a it's a really really important topic. Um, and so uh, I'll just briefly describe my own situation, and then I'll go into sort of my philosophy on this question. I feel very fortunate because I do have a question that has motivated me uh, basically for all my life, and. I have tried to run away from that question. I've tried to um, uh, do some other things and, and you know, uh, pursue happiness uh, over uh, the pursuit of the question. And, uh, uh, and yet this question keeps on calling me back. Um, and that is the question of, are we alone? Is there life beyond Earth? Um, and it's a question that has required a significant struggle. Uh, I've had plenty of folks throughout the years discourage me from going into this field. And, and even within the field, it's uh, an incredible uphill battle. Uh, you wouldn't believe how much you know, professional grief I get for trying to advance a, a lander to go to Europa. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not the... Um, Pursuing your question and achieving happiness are not always um, <laughs> co-aligned, co, uh, co um, but I do feel grateful that um, uh, that this question has uh, captivated my curiosity since um, since I was a young young child and a and a student. And back to your um, description of this of this um, of this issue. Whenever I meet with students or, uh, and talk about their careers or, or give advice to groups of students about um, what they should do with their lives, be it science or medicine or, you know, architecture or art or music, um, I pose that question of the question to them. What is your question? What is the, the idea that uh, just captivates you and that you cannot let go of. And I think this is really, really important, especially for people who are pursuing PhDs and who are dedicating their lives to a career 
that um, really doesn't have much of an upside in terms of lifestyle and all these things other than the pleasure of finding things out, uh, to, to use a Feynman phrase. Um, and so, you know, with a number of, of students, uh, when they have not been able to come up with a question that really motivates them, I tell them to take time off, do more internships or, or go do that, um, you know, hiking trip uh, for you know, three months in Peru or something like that, right? And they, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and to to just pull yourself away from your field and see if your field pulls you back. Uh, fall in love with your field again, um, or fall in love with with something else. Um, and in this day and age, I worry that we've got potentially too many people getting PhDs because they think it's the thing that smart people do. Uh, they're, they're sort of trained by their schooling and the, and society that, Oh, you know, smart people study physics and smart people get PhDs and, and go on with, uh, uh, with uh, their studies in academia and, and research, etc. Um, and, and so people end up going into these endeavors. I think, uh, some people end up going into these endeavors for the wrong reasons. They go into them to meet the expectations of others, as opposed to really doing the soul searching of what their question is, whether they do have a question that, that captivates them enough to dedicate their life to. And making sure that they're in love with that question and the lifestyle that it uh, requires. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, uh, perfect sense. And you know, one of the one of the things that that is, I agree with you. And in the in the case of there's there's too many people. I think there's probably too many people going to college in general, not PhDs, but but um, there's a lot of people in my experience who I graduated with um, who don't know what they want to do they they were following in the footsteps of what their what was expected of them and not even what's expected of them it's not even that it's like this is a pretty streamlined path we have here mm-hmm. um we'll put ourselves yeah. in a bunch of debt but we won't have to worry about it the bills aren't going to show oh, up anytime soon goodness. um and we're just going to put ourselves through this and and um you know you get in an interesting situation where everyone else is doing it so mm-hmm. you feel like you actually have to even if you don't want to but you have to in order to be competitive in any sort of, of you know, sort of market that's, yeah. that's uh, trying to find skills. So I, I see how this sort of ideology begins. Um, yeah. And I see a lot of it in physics and astronomy. And I, do, I but I do think there are probably some people because um, I, I have a real passion for this. And I would say my my question has changed over time. Um, <laughs> and that's been an interesting thing to deal with because for example when i came in to get my phd the first two years of my phd were spent addressing a question that i lost passion for about eight months after i started mm-hmm. um and so you know i kept plugging away for a long time before i decided hey i gotta stop pursuing this question 
um, because you're trying to meet deadlines. You're trying to get a master's thesis. You're trying to do this and you're trying to you – know, you know what I mean? So you're focusing on um, on day-to-day and not big picture. And so I agree with you 100 percent that that you need to step back. Not Even if you have your question figured out, I think, just because no one ever has everything figured out. So it's always good to step away and step back and, and analyze where you're at as a human, as a person, um, and whether or not you're doing the thing you want to do. And, and the, the thing I've noticed in my life is that uh, your brain always knows if you're doing the thing you want to do. You can lie to other people. You can lie to uh, your PhD advisor. You can lie to anyone you want to lie to, but you can't lie to yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, when you look in the mirror, you know if you're doing the thing you want to be doing. And you know if you're addressing the question that you find interesting. But at the same time, I do think that that you know, in some cases, science can be a pursuit that people are interested in the pursuit. Like that is mm-hmm. their that is their uh, end game. Um, it's like I, I don't know. I don't know if you're a, a big fan of sports in any way, but there are mm-hmm. tons of in every sport there are tons of uh, people that get termed journeymen. They aren't mm-hmm. winning titles. They aren't winning yep. championships. But they love playing the game, and they're okay. Obviously, they would like to win a Super Bowl every year, like to win a championship every year. Um, but if they don't, it's not the end game for them, and they keep pursuing it because their big question is participation in the thing that they love. That's and, exactly and so, right. Yep. So I think there's something to be said for for people doing that too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And um, uh, the NASA and and JPL are are, are great examples of that where. Uh, you can be a part of a, a, a team that is um, getting these these big endeavors done, and or or, or as an individual scientist, um, you know, coming back to that Feynman quote of uh, the pleasure of finding things out, um, I, the um, uh, going from uh, problem to to problem, uh, be it a math problem or a biology problem or a physics problem is intrinsically or can be intrinsically satisfying. And so, like you're saying, you don't necessarily need to have a singular question. That is that is one path. That is the sort of path that I've been on, and I feel very fortunate for that. But there's also um, uh, uh, a, a whole – an entire way to make a scientific career – where you just follow your nose uh, and and explore little curiosities in your field or across a, a spectrum of fields. Um, you know, I think a great example of that um, is uh, my colleague Joe Kirschvink up at Caltech. Uh, I, don't, I don't know Joe particularly well. We've uh, interacted a number of times throughout the years. And Joe is a, a great earth scientist, uh, geologist who um, – uh, had a, a key role in some of our understanding of uh, epics of snowball earth uh, in the past. Mm-hmm. But more recently, he's been pursuing this this uh, crazy idea or, you know, quote, crazy idea, uh, according to others, that the human brain can detect differences in magnetic fields. Uh, and so he's been putting in people into um, these uh, special rooms and, and doing – uh, blind, if not double blind experiments to see whether or not they can actually detect changes in the fields. And I think he's now got a paper out on it. 
But I just love the fact that Joe's like, ah, who cares? I'm going to follow my nose on this. Uh, I think magnetism is really cool. He studied uh, uh, various – he studied magnetism as pertains to, to rocks initially, and then that led him down this path uh, where uh, his curiosity ended up on uh, whether or not the human brain uh, is sensitive to changes in magnetic fields. So I, I love people who uh, are, are fearless uh, in their uh, – with their curiosity um, and, and pursue things uh, that uh, captivate their imaginations. Yeah, now, I get I get a. I'm sorry, I don't I don't mean to interrupt. No, keep going. Go ahead. I get a ton of emails from people uh, along these lines where um, they have an idea and they might not be scientists and they might not be experts. And in some cases, they are. They have been in school. They have done degrees in some field of science. And in some way, the scientific community has disenfranchised them. That has made them feel like. Their contribution is meaningless. It's uh, not yeah. necessary. And I see that a lot in the competition of ideas is people have this weird tendency to tell other people that their idea is is wrong or stupid or um, a, a bad – like I, I don't understand that sort of discourse in science. I, I don't think that's what science is about, and I see it literally every day. Right, and, and it's – um uh, so two parts to that. Um, one is that, uh, yes, that definitely exists and it, it, we all experience it and it's, you know, I have so many roller coasters in my own, uh, scientific career and, and what I'm trying to get done. And, and, uh, even though from the outside, you know, you may say, Oh, he's working at JPL and that's all great. No, it's very challenging. And and trying to get uh, these things done, uh, it's very challenging and, and can be, uh, depressing, uh, mm-hmm. especially when you dedicate your life to, to trying to do something good and, and people tell you that, um, uh, that's, you know, they don't like you for what you're trying to get done and, and, uh, they, they are very discouraging. Uh, um, and, uh, but coupled with that, obviously, anybody who's pursuing anything in science needs to make sure that first and foremost, they adhere to the scientific method and the rigor of, of science. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, making sure that, uh, that, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the hypothesis is supported by, uh, experiments and, and that you've, you followed the rigor of the scientific method. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, 100%. Because we do, and especially in my field uh, where I'm looking for aliens, uh, you know, I, I, I do get a lot of very uh, excited and interested uh, people who who have um, far out uh, ideas um, which are interesting but not necessarily grounded in uh, the scientific method or, or, or um, repeatable evidence. Yes, 100%. And um, I have a – Situation uh, like you a couple times where people have reached out to me with outlandish ideas, ideas that like um, one that sticks out to me is FRBs are aliens, right? <laughs> and, <sure. laughs> um, and the person who would reach out to me and I, I, I bring him up uh, frequently actually because I think it's a great example has done – he has a whole website dedicated to it. He's done a level of noise analysis that you see only professionals do. Um, he's really like taken the raw data of FRBs and he's done real scientific analysis on them. His conclusions mm-hmm. are not grounded in scientific method, but his work is is well done. And mm-hmm. I look at that and he's not alone. There's dozens, probably thousands of people who have ideas and even might put some effort into the idea. 
mm-hmm. but I think that if we could be less rigid in our idea of what science is, in the sense of not telling people all their ideas are stupid, right? Mm-hmm. If we could be more open as a community to accepting new ideas, then instead of those people sending me emails, they could be publishing papers on the inside. And they could be doing good work and getting support from people on the inside. And maybe if they had an education in science that led them to make conclusions based on the scientific method, then not only would their work be good, but their conclusions would be good too. Right. And and the um, uh, it's tricky because on the one hand um, uh, you do need that – PhD uh, as the um, uh, confirmation of your adherence to the scientific method and creating new knowledge. Right. Uh, and, and that is a, uh, a difficult bar to uh, achieve. And, and just a, a brief segue back on, on PhDs in grad school and all that. Um, Despite what I said earlier about you know being in love with your question and 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 all that, you, you, I did allude to the the sort of and sometimes mutually exclusive existence of a passion for one's question and uh, and uh, and happiness. Um, uh, under no uh, scenario should any student have the expectation that uh, while they're doing their PhD. They are living a life of happiness. Um, so, you know, yeah. it's, um, right. uh, and, you know, if, if you are a PhD student out there and you are very happy with your life right now, that's fantastic. Um, but for those PhD students who, who are, are not enjoying their PhD, so to speak, um, uh, that is, that is part of the process. And, and, uh, and the PhD is in part doing such a deep dive on something such that you can move our web of knowledge just a little further out on that branch, uh, such that you have pushed the frontier of knowledge sufficiently to warrant a PhD. Um, yeah. and, and that can be frustrating, but yeah, you know, back, I think it's, oh, no, sorry, you go. Well, I was just going to say back to your, your bigger picture question. I, uh, I do think uh, like you're saying, there is this perhaps untapped potential of, scientific participation that traditionally has has been not easily engaged because of you know let's call it the the ivory tower way of of academia um but hopefully now with the age of the internet with the age of big data with the age of making sure that all data is out there and accessible by anyone not just a select few scientists and with the advent of DIY from Arduinos to this thing and that thing, um, you know, we're seeing an incredible proliferation of the sort of um, of the DIY scientist and engineer. Um, how do they engage in the publication of scientific results in journals? Um, you know, I've, I've seen a number of, of articles get published by non-PhD um the scientists and oftentimes they team up with uh, with a with a co-author who does have a PhD and that can kind of help them uh, get into journals and things. But um, uh, you know, I think we're going to be seeing more and more of that because so much data is out there and the population of scientists just can't 
handle all that data, especially yeah. when it comes to biology and genomes and, and now viromes and, and all that. We've, we've talked about sort of life for 50 minutes now, um, which is great. <laughs> I love it. Um, I hope you don't mind going a little longer than, than planned because I do want to talk about the science. Uh, no, not at all. And, and I do have a, a, a something uh, something to say about the FRB uh, person uh, that. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I sure. Just, um, uh, should I just dive into that riff? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, no worries. Uh, uh, and so back to your um, uh, this person who's studying the uh, the fast radio bursts. Um, you know, a key recommendation there would be um, to make sure that. Um, well, this is true for the entire field of astrobiology and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, et cetera. Um, as uh, Carl Sagan and co-authors said in a 1993 Science or Nature paper, um, uh, life is the hypothesis of last resort. And so um, uh, try and come up with some other uh, explanation yes. for for the FRBs, right? And then maybe have a a final clause of uh of the conclusions paragraph that says um, the possibility still exists that um, such things could be explained by such and such uh, you know civilizations, but um, yeah. uh, given the uh, uh, extraordinary claims again to use another Saganism uh, uh, the extraordinary claim of life elsewhere. Um, the evidence uh, must also be extraordinary, um, and it must be um, uh, multifaceted. Uh, a, a singular line of evidence is rarely going to suffice when it comes to life detection. Um, this is not talked about that much in the SETI community, but it's something that in in my um, sort of searching for the simpler life forms within our solar system community, uh, it's a topic of great discussion. You know, how many biosignatures does it take and of what kind are those biosignatures uh, that you would need in order to give you uh, true confidence that you have actually detected life? Uh, bringing together a, a multitude of measurements, each of which is complementary and redundant to yield that final answer of yes or no uh we have or have not detected life yeah and i had the uh the original uh discoverer of the first fast radio burst on the show and uh duncan Lormer, and he he very much said the same thing it's like yeah aliens was at the back of the mind but we had a lot of of um ruling out to do before that and now in the, the current age of frbs we have thousands of detections so i think mm -hmm. aliens are well off the table it's probably some um interesting astrophysical phenomenon that we don't know yet so that's a very mm -hmm. interesting question that i'm interested in uh, Absolutely. what are those um but we we should switch gears to europa the subject mm -hmm. well not the subject but but a bulk of the subject of of the book alien oceans and okay, first off where did the 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 motivation for the name come from um, it's just sort of, uh, so, so that's my Twitter handle. Uh, yeah, I noticed and, that. I wondered if which one became, which one came first. Um, I've been writing this book for, well, basically since I finished my PhD, uh, and just kind of chipping away at it. And I kind of gone back and forth with, uh, calling it ocean worlds and alien oceans, um, and ocean worlds, um, has become, there's a long story there about work that 
we've done to kind of build uh, excitement about ocean worlds more broadly within within NASA. Um, and so there's a um, uh, uh, so so that name has uh, uh, has been used quite well. Uh, and then Alien Oceans um, was my other option, and I just I kind of thought it was a better title for a, a popular science book. Yeah, no, I I, I really like the name. I think the name is really good, and I think it will serve you well in terms of um, actually getting the book to a, a wide audience. And I hope I can help facilitate that in some way. Um, oh, but thanks. You, I, I wrote it for my uh, my 16 or 15 year old self and uh, other um, uh, young minds and older minds that uh, uh, that are captivated by this. You know, I, I still go to my childhood bookstore, the Northshire Bookstore in Manchester, Vermont. And uh, uh, yeah, that's where I grew up buying uh, physics books and experiments or books about hands-on experiments and stuff. And so uh, uh, as I was writing this, I was like, what would what would the, the younger me grab off the shelf? Uh, and uh, I certainly would have grabbed Alien Oceans. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Now, you're, you also have an audiobook, right? That's right, and I did the audio on it. So apologies to uh, any of you out there who um, uh, endeavor to get that and have to listen to my voice for ten and a half hours. Um, but uh, I did the best I could. I'm not a professional book reader or, or uh, audio person, but uh, it was I'm fun, sh- if not exhausting. I'm sure it's. Uh, I'm sure it's great. I I really love the concept of audiobooks, and um, I don't know if you're familiar with who David Goggins is. Do you know who that is? Does that name mean anything to you? Uh, was he at Wired or is he at Wired or no? He's he was a Goggins. he's an ultra marathon runner. Ah, um, okay. No, I he, don't. Know. He wrote a book. He's a, he's a uh, marine as well, and he wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me. And and it doesn't matter. The book doesn't nothing matters about that. But he did an audiobook, and I thought the format was perfect for science audiobooks. And I wanted to mm. sort of tell you what it was. And what he did was he had a, a narrator, and you don't need a narrator, but he had a narrator uh, read the book, and then. In you know, like sort of at the end of the sections or at the end of the chapters of each book, they would have almost like a podcast episode and talk oh. more in depth about the chapter. What's the motivation for you writing a thing a particular way or going deeper into the science of, you know, this particular aspect? I thought that would translate to science books in a way cool. that, yeah. that was incredible. Oh. Uh, so just a just an idea if you write a Alien Oceans Part 2. In the future. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, so Europa. Europa is uh, arguably the thing that fascinates you the most, I would say, um, based off of what I've read. Am I right? Uh, correct. Okay. Uh, Europa, Enceladus, and Titan. Uh, uh, but uh, Europa certainly has been the focus of much of my attention for the past 20 years. Yeah. Now, Europa, I get a lot of questions sent to me about Europa, and I even talk about Europa sometimes when, I, when I'm when i in your seat and um, talking to, to other people. Um, and you do an excellent breakdown of how we know what we know about Europa. So I want to go through your three steps, if you will, that you use to illuminate how we know what we know about Europa. So starting with spectroscopy, how do we know Kevin, what the surface of Europa, of a satellite orbiting Jupiter very, very far away that we can only see as little blips of light in our telescopes, how do we know what the surface of that object is made of? Right. So the um, uh, Galileo discovered Europa and the the other uh, three large moons uh, uh, back in 1610, some 350 years after that, astronomers on the ground here on Earth 
uh, are finally able to use spectroscopy using uh, uh, spectrographs on the end of their telescopes to collect the light from Europa and the other moons uh, to figure out what the composition of those worlds are. And so, I, as you know, I go into detail on some of the history of spectroscopy in the book, and it's just fascinating. I mean, the, the, the ability to collect light to figure out what the compounds are of something at a distance, be it uh, a sample on a lab table uh, and using a, a handheld spectrometer, or be it uh, a spectrometer on the end of the telescope and figuring out the composition of a star uh, or, or a galaxy um, uh, far off uh, in the distance. Um, spectroscopy is incredibly powerful. And when it comes to Europa, uh, Vasily Moreau, uh, and I, I'm probably incorrectly pronouncing his, his Russian name, uh, but Moreau uh, was one of the first uh, astronomers, along with Gerhard Kuiper, uh, of Kuiper Belt fame, uh, collected spectra of Europa, and it had this beautiful stepwise pattern uh, in the near-infrared region of the spectrum. And that stepwise pattern where you've got an absorption at 1.5 microns and 2 microns, is highly diagnostic of water ice. And so in the late 60s, early 70s, some 350 years after Galileo discovers Europa as this point of light orbiting Jupiter, we finally transform this world into a world of ice. And that's the first piece of the puzzle towards discovering an ocean below that ice. Yeah, and and now moving in that direction, what's the next step? Now you call that in the book you call it the rainbow connection, and I do think that you I learned a lot about the history of spectroscopy that I didn't know. Um, I, I'm not necessarily a, you know uh, a observationalist, if you will. Um, the I do own some binoculars, and when I lived I went to college in Pennsylvania, and we lived in the mountains um, at the time, and so. It was – I had a beautiful clear sky, and I was much more – I would take the university's telescopes to my house with me, and, and I was much more into it now. Now I can't see anything except for <laughs> – Because you're in Rochester. Um, yeah, so the the options are, are dwindling for me. But you, right. there was a ton of fascinating material about the history of spectroscopes and spectroscopy in that chapter that I, I had to read through a couple times because I, I wanted to program it into my head. It's it's fascinating stuff. So oh, thanks. we learn what the surface is made of. But the next major question is, um, what's going on, the dynamics of the surface? What's going on with it? And then what's underneath? How can right. we describe what's underneath that surface? How can we describe what's at the core, what's what's in the, the what in Earth we would term the mantle? How do we describe the composition? Yeah. Yeah. And and so uh, in the years and decades after these ground based observations were done, uh, the Voyager spacecraft would fly by Jupiter and, and take uh, uh, pictures of Europa and the other moons. And and so those those images and some of the spectra from those spacecraft also helped confirm uh, spectroscopically and also visually that Europa is this. Um, at least uh, as an outer shell of ice. But then to get at the interior, we have two other key pieces of the puzzle. And the second piece, uh, I like to make the analogy to um, 
babysitting a spacecraft. And what I mean by this, and, and what I think you probably appreciated in this chapter, is the, the role of gravity and gravity wells in um, uh, affecting the trajectory of a spacecraft as it flies by a world. And so uh, this piece of evidence comes from the Galileo spacecraft, uh, which arrived at Jupiter in the uh, uh, in the mid to late 90s uh, and orbited Jupiter and flew by Europa and the other moons many times. And with each flyby, it would uh, enter the, the gravity well of Europa uh, at varying distances. Sometimes it would be a closer approach than other, than other times. And on a few of these flybys, the... Uh, one of the antennas on board the Galileo spacecraft would be sending signals back to Earth so as to enable scientists on the ground, scientists and engineers, I should say, because nothing happens without the engineers. We scientists like to think we're the smart ones. We're not. The engineers know how to actually get stuff done. Oh, um, yes. That's 100% <laughs> true. People who can tinker, people who yeah. can tinker are by default going to be successful in life. That's something yeah. I've noticed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we scientists can come up with the crazy ideas, but it takes the uh, the engineers to really get it done. So in any case, the um, uh, as um, a spacecraft flies by a world, well, uh, so I so I kind of tangentially mentioned gravity wells. Um, uh, we think about gravity wells uh, in kind of the general theory of relativity way of a of a black hole deforming a mattress. And, um, and and deforming the the shape of, of space itself, and gravity really being more of a deformation of a, of space than than anything uh, uh, anything else. And while we typically think of black holes as as the, the the bowling ball on the mattress, really everything does that. Our sun does that. It's got a gravity well. The Earth has got a gravity well. Jupiter's got a tremendously large gravity well. Europa has got a gravity well. And so as a spacecraft goes through our, our solar system, it's escaping and uh, uh, kind of um, uh, surfing these various gravity wells. And the Galileo spacecraft, once it got out to Jupiter and started flying by Europa, it dipped in and out of Europa's gravity well and at the same time sent signals back to Earth where scientists and engineers on the ground could measure the slight Doppler shift in that signal so as to see how the spacecraft was accelerating and decelerating. In other words, you could begin to map out the gravity well. And once you've done that, you can start to solve for the moment of inertia of a world, in this case, uh, Europa. And so by using the gravity data, in other words, the Doppler shift of, of transmissions coming back from the spacecraft, as it does these close approaches, uh, you can use the gravi gravitational potential equation, a, a very long equation, um, and tease out the moment of inertia. Once you've got the moment of inertia, you can then uh, plug in various numbers to see how interior models for the structure of Europa fit or do not fit that moment of inertia. And for, and for Europa, the um, uh, I described the process, but I didn't describe the end result. At Europa, right. 
mm-hmm. what this ends up doing is that you get a um, the coefficient out front for the moment of inertia of a sphere. I won't go into detail on it, but suffice to say that the, the coefficient was 0.346. Um, and what that means is that Europa could not be a singular sphere of the same material all throughout. What the moment of inertia measurement revealed about Europa is that it must have some dense core and just based on you know general geologic principles what makes sense for a dense core in a in a planet or moon is iron or iron mixed with some sulfur and then over that the moment of inertia leads you to the conclusion that there is a lower density region that uh, is well fit by uh, material with a density similar to that of of rock and and silicates, Uh, so similar to uh, the density of things that we find in our own mantle. But what's curious is that, try as they might, the scientists and engineers who were working with this data back in the late 90s and early 2000s, they could not just get away with a two-layer model uh, for Europa. And even when they tried three layers, they still had a a hard time uh, where they were able to arrive at a solution was when they did a three-layer model for the structure of Europa, where they had an iron-iron-sulfur core overlain by a rocky silicate mantle, and over that, a layer of roughly 100 to 200 kilometers in thickness of a material of unit density, in other words, one gram per cubic centimeter. Mm-hmm. What material has that density? Water. Water. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and so the, uh, and that was consistent with the spectroscopy. You know that the outermost region is, is water ice, uh, but the spectroscopy only gets you down, say, a hundred microns or maybe a, at most a millimeter or so. Um, and so now with the gravity data, the Galileo team at least had, uh, some inkling that this outer shell of Europa of some 100 to 200 kilometers in depth was water in either liquid or solid phase. And so that completes the second piece of the puzzle. The The third third piece is something I'll never understand about you. Uh, (laughs) Your love for airport security. This is actually a a quick aside, Kevin. This is super um, fascinating to me. That you would, and, and I'm sure you'll mention it, but that you would you would carry a vial of salt through airport security. You actually did that, right? Yeah, that's right. And this did you did you have a game plan for what you would say when you got caught if you got caught? Well, I mean, it's just like it's saline solution for my contacts. That's uh, oh. I, you know, I, I wear glasses and contacts, and uh, uh, you know, so I just wrote saline solution, which is true. Uh, it was just much more saline than uh than standard saline solution. So fair enough. Yeah, uh, I'm picturing just like a salt shaker in your pocket. No, it was just you know <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd fill up a, a a little you know bottle that um that was basically saturated with salt. Um, yeah, right. And, uh, uh, so, describe your love for airport security. Then, how does this help right. us learn about Europa? Right. So, so the third piece of the puzzle here, the the the, the final uh, piece that that gets us to the liquid water ocean. Uh, I, I like to make the analogy to how I learned to love airport security. And what I mean by that is that 
when you're at an airport, which uh, we should say you and I are recording this during the, the pandemic and I hope everybody is safe out there and, and none of us are going to airports uh, right now, thankfully. Um, so stay safe and hope uh, folks are healthy out there. Um, but when we would go through security at an airport and in particular those those doorways, um, not the big you know cylindrical things that, that uh, are becoming more and more common – when you would walk to those through those traditional doorways at airport security, you're walking through a time-varying magnetic field, a pulsating magnetic field that's rising and falling in strength. And also within that doorway is a uh, a type of magnetometer that can in, uh, that can detect induced magnetic fields uh, that push back against the magnetic field that the doorway is cre- creating. And so what happens is that uh, what we learned from uh, Maxwell's equations and Faraday's law is that if you have a conductor in your pocket uh, and you walk through that doorway where the the time ma- the time varying magnetic field is interacting with that that piece of metal or salty bottle of water or whatever else it is that you have in your pocket, that magnetic field from the doorway will induce electric currents in that conductor that you've got. And those induced electric currents will then give rise to what we call induced magnetic fields. And the little sensors in the doorway detect those induced magnetic fields. And if they detect those induced magnetic fields, the alarm goes off. And so what happened around Europa with the Galileo spacecraft is that the alarm went off. The Galileo spacecraft had on board uh, a magnetometer that that was tasked with measuring Jupiter's magnetic field and also any magnetic fields or variations around Jupiter's large moons. And what the spacecraft revealed around Europa is that Europa does not have its own intrinsic field. It does not have a field like, uh, like the planet Earth does. We have our own intrinsic field. Right. The field that the Galileo spacecraft detected around Europa is a field that was rising, and I say it was, it's, it's still happening, happening out there, mm-hmm. um, but uh, a magnetic field that rises and falls in concert with Jupiter's changing magnetic field. And here's where things get uh, get interesting, and it helps to have a whiteboard, but uh, again, this is described in the book, and there's some diagrams and stuff, but... Jupiter is rotating on its axis once every 10 hours. In other words, Jupiter's day is, is 10 hours. Uh, if you're Europa, it's 11 hours. That's the synodic period. Europa is moving in its orbit around Jupiter. So Europa sees the same piece of Jupiter once every 11 hours. And the magnetic field of Jupiter is tilted off of the rotation axis of Jupiter by nearly 10 degrees. And what this means is that as Jupiter spins, the North Pole and the South Pole variable, variably sweep past Europa and the other moons. And so uh, uh, during the initial part of that 11-hour period that Europa experiences with Jupiter – it sees more of a North Pole from Jupiter, 
And then during the second half of that period, it sees more of Jupiter's south magnetic pole. In other words, Jupiter in this analogy is kind of like that, that doorway that you're walking through that has a time-varying magnetic field. And Europa is kind of like you. And Galileo is like those sensors in the doorway where the Galileo spacecraft has that little magnetometer to detect any rising and falling perturbations to the, to the, to the natural field of Jupiter. And so the Galileo results show this time varying magnetic field, this induced magnetic field around Europa that is rising and falling with the changes in Jupiter's field. And so from that, from the observation, are you still with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know, I know we're, we're doing a deep dive here, but this is, this is beautiful physics. It's, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's physics 101 applied at the scale of discovering an alien ocean. And I just love this stuff. So the, the, um, so the observation is an induced magnetic field. That yeah. observation necessitates there to be some conductor within Europa. Just like when the alarm goes off at the airport security, uh, you know, you get pulled aside because the security is like you got something conductive in your pocket. Well, with the Galileo results around Europa, the scientific team basically had to pull Europa aside and say, you know, we got to pat you down. You got a conductor somewhere inside you, Europa. And, <laughs> and now we need to pat it down. We need to go there. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. and so sure enough, um, Margie Kievelson and, and Christian Karana and their team, just this, this amazing team, uh, looked at the data from the magnetometer and the best fit to that induced magnetic field signature around Europa is a near surface conducting layer. And when you couple that near surface conducting layer with the earlier two lines of evidence, the spectroscopy and the gravity, where those lead you to having a, a layer of liquid water on the exterior of Europa, now you have this, this implication that the water layer is creating this induced field. It turned out that the iron core was too small and too far away to explain the magnetometer data. The rocky mantle is not conductive enough. But what is conductive enough to explain the induced magnetic field signature is a salty liquid water ocean beneath a relatively thin ice shell covering Europa. And that's how we get that third piece of the puzzle that leads us to this vast, global, 100-kilometer-deep, salty liquid water ocean on Europa. It's just beautiful physics. Now, when you say relatively thin for the ice layer, what, mm-hmm. what are we talking about in terms of relatively thin? Yeah, there, this is one of the big debates in the in the Europa community, uh, um, uh, you know, thin versus thick. And I fall more on the thin side, and that in part comes from work that I've published on the uh, uh, on the magnetometer results. And the um, I think that Europa's ice shell is 10 kilometers or fewer in thickness. Where, and, and so that qualifies as a relatively thin shell. Mm-hmm. The, the thick shell community for Europa thinks that it's maybe 15 kilometers or thicker. I am hoping, praying that we're on the thin side because <laughs> right. 
I imagine that the difference between thin and thick in terms of exploration becomes a, a world of difficulty. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Well, uh, you're correct uh, in that uh, if we imagine a melt probe or a drill getting through the ice shell someday, uh, that um, uh, yes, we would need a much longer tether. Uh, it would potentially be more complicated to get through 20 kilometers of ice as opposed to, um, uh, say, a, a few kilometers of ice. But let me be clear about a couple of things. Um, when I talk about this thin shell, thick shell debate, really what we're talking about is the kind of global average. Right. And I think all of us in the Europa community and the broader planetary science community and ocean worlds community would say that there's certainly plenty of reason to think that there may well be thinner regions of ice. There may mm -hmm. be um, geographic differences and, and, you know, thicker at the poles and thinner at the equator, or perhaps the opposite. Who, who, who knows at this point? Um, so for the most part, the debate is about the average thickness. Um, coupled with that, one of the big discoveries over the past year or so, and this was spearheaded by um, a grad student at Caltech, uh, Caltech uh, Samantha Trumbo, uh, working with Mike Brown and myself. Um, she helped spearhead some Hubble Space Telescope observations where we went after these spectroscopic features that um, I had found in, in our lab, the Ocean Worlds Lab at JPL, these, these features, these absorption features that occur in irradiated salt. And in this case, I'm talking about sodium chloride. Uh, when sodium chloride is irradiated, it turns this yellowish, orangish, brown color. And with that come very specific absorption features that are highly diagnostic of sodium chloride. So what that means and, is if, if there's sodium chloride on the surface of Europa and it is irradiated with, with radiation from the sun or, or from any other mechanism. There's a magnetic field. There's all sorts of electrons and ions right. barring Europa's surface. Yes. Uh, yep. So keep going. So, yep. So it, it, if that was the case, if we had sodium or if we had salt rather on the surface, we irradiated it through through whatever mechanism we, we choose to irradiate it with. We should be able to see that show up once again in the spectroscopy. That's exactly right. And so, you know, just a, a little more background. Ever since the days of the Galileo mission, where Galileo, uh, the Galileo spacecraft also had a spectrometer on board, and that was PI'd by Bob Carlson, who is retired from JPL and was uh, one of my mentors. Um, ever since the days of the Galileo mission, there was this debate about salts on the surface of Europa, and that debate largely focused on magnesium sulfate. And I won't go into great detail here, but suffice to say that Bob and I always found the spectroscopic evidence for magnesium sulfate to be a bit lacking. And, and so we never quite hung our hat on this idea that there were salts coming up from the ocean below based on the Galileo near-infrared mapping spectrometer data. But fast forward to a couple of years ago when we started doing these experiments in the lab, and then last year when uh, Samantha published this paper, that uh, is all about sodium chloride. 
I now am very confident that we are seeing sodium chloride on the surface of Europa, and we're seeing it by merit of the the spectroscopic signatures that are, arise after you irradiate it, which is what happens on Europa's surface by merit of the uh, of the electron bombardment and the ion bombardment that occurs in the Jovian system. And what that means to me is that regardless of the, the thickness of Europa's ice shell, somehow material from the ocean, uh, ocean water, salty ocean water, is being cryovolcanically erupted or plumes are jetting out uh, uh, from Europa or somehow there is an overturned mechanism that is bringing material from the ocean up to the surface. And this so, is also evidenced by the fact that we don't see much cratering on the surface. Is that exactly, true? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we know that Europa's ice uh, globally is extraordinarily young. Uh, the the average uh, age of the ice shell, as uh, determined by the paucity of, of craters on the surface, is in the range of 10 to 100 million years in age. Uh, the kind of standard number that people like to use is 60 to 70 million years in age. That sounds old to us as, as humans, but geologically, that's uh, that, that that's the, the flash of a pan. That is comparable to the oceanic crust here on Earth, which is uh, some of the youngest rock on our home planet. Yes. Um, and so now we, we paint the picture of Europa as we have a rocky core, we have an icy crust, and in the middle, we have an ocean. Not just an ocean, but an ocean that has salts. And we know it has salts because we can detect that they have seeped their way up to the surface been irradiated, and we can detect that irradiated material. Is all of that That's right. correct? That's correct. Okay. And what's interesting there is that sodium chloride, uh, as we all know from you know dousing our, our meals with it, uh, table salt is sodium chloride. Uh, and normally sodium chloride is, is white in color, and spectroscopically it is also white, meaning that it is just a flat line. But once you irradiate it, it turns this yellowish, uh, uh, reddish color. And so it's only after irradiation that you can see sodium chloride spectroscopically. And, uh, so that's just this beautiful thing where the Jovian system is giving this, giving us this, this clue to the ocean below. And, and a lot of people look at the radiation environment of Jupiter as something that is, that is really challenging and hard for us, which, which it is. It makes it harder to build our robotic spacecraft that can tolerate that radiation. But it's also that, that radiation is also giving us this, this beautiful fingerprint on Europa's surface of the ocean trapped beneath the ice. Now, if there were aliens in that ocean, what do you suppose they would look like in terms of physically? What, do, what kind of creatures do you expect to find? And, and then, you know, what kind of biology do you expect to find? Right. Yeah. And obviously this is a, this is a question that I, I uh, uh, spend a lot of my time pondering. And, and to be clear, I would be happy with even the tiniest of microbe. Um, the discovery of just a simple organism uh, on a distant world like Europa or Enceladus or Titan or, or Mars for that matter would revolutionize our understanding of biology and the place of life in, in the universe. Now, 
I do love Mars, and I'm working on part um, part of the Mars uh, uh, Rover 2020 team, uh, Perseverance, and uh, and our exploration of Mars is is amazing and fantastic. But on Mars, we are primarily looking for evidence of life as trapped in the rock record. Mm-hmm. Whereas out at Europa and these alien oceans beyond Earth, we have the potential to explore worlds where life could be alive today. These organisms that may be emplaced on the surface of Europa along with the salt, you know, they would be dead on the surface, but they would have come from an ocean uh, that's there today and, and potentially supporting life today. And I find that uh, incredibly uh, compelling because really what I want to do is understand the fundamental biochemistry of life. I want to see whether or not there is a, a periodic table of life or a, a great tree of life that populates uh, our universe. And, and I go into this, as you know, later in the book, uh, I kind of explore the, the possible diversity uh, biochemically of, of life uh, and, and different uh, modalities for how life could arise under different chemistries uh, using water or other solvents, carbon or other elements. Uh, and so at Europa, we are dealing with a world, and this is true for Enceladus also and for uh, the subsurface ocean of, of Titan. At those worlds, we can formulate an hypothesis that water, ba- water, <laughs> life based on liquid water and carbon could work within those oceans. In other words, our study of life on Earth and all of the extremes in which life on Earth can survive, and here again I'm talking uh, primarily about microbial life, which has an incredible uh, array of metabolic solutions and and uh, to getting the business of life done and, and can tolerate pressures and temperatures and pHs and all those parameters uh, over much uh, a much wider range than we humans can tolerate. Those microbes, we think, could survive within Europa's ocean and Enceladus's ocean and perhaps in the, the subsurface ocean of Titan. And so uh, I think that we could go to Europa and find microbial life, but there's a chance, and this ties back to the radiation story, there's a chance that larger organisms, multicellular life, could also exist within Europa's ocean too. You have a picture in the book of a red crustacean. <laughs> and I believe you took this picture while you were on one of your your deep dives here on the planet Earth. And um, I don't know exactly where the image was taken. Do you know what image I'm referencing? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that was in Menes Gwen, uh, deep uh, down at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And so when I look at that picture, I can't help but think this probably exists somewhere else. There's so <laughs> much water. I mean, you mentioned the figures in in the in the text of all of the water in the solar system. How much of it is on planet Earth? Right. Well, and this is where you know Earth is potentially a a 
bad place for life, despite evidence right. to the contrary. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and my uh, PhD advisor Chris Chaba used to lo- to love to to say that and and to point out that you know Earth really should be a lot drier and more depleted in carbon than it really is. Uh, and when you look at the inner planets, it's obvious that Earth is kind of this anomaly. Uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, the asteroids for the most part, are kind of bone dry. Uh, obviously, Mars had a wetter history in the past, and, and maybe Venus did too. But um, we think that much of Earth's water came from cometary impacts or main belt comets, asteroids that carry water, uh, after planet Earth was accreted and the, the, the heavy bombardment uh, period settled down. And so, um, really, it's the outer solar system that is host to many of the uh, much of the water in the form of ice and, and liquid water in the case of these alien oceans uh, that could be uh, uh, prime habitable real estate for uh, for life within our solar system. You know, Europa's ocean has somewhere in the range of two to three times the volume of all the liquid water uh, found in Earth's ocean. And when you sum up all of the other potential uh, alien oceans in our solar system. Uh, you get in excess of, uh, of perhaps 50 times the volume of all the liquid water found in Earth's ocean. So that's a lot of real estate. And I, too, uh, hope that uh, maybe there might not just be microbial life, but uh, perhaps even more complex organisms within those uh, alien oceans. And, and I'm glad you like that, that image in the book. That's exactly why I put it in there, uh, just to kind of captivate the imagination and, uh, you know, coming back to your – your uh, earlier comments about uh, the the big picture and 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 staying centered on the on these big pictures that motivate us. Uh, I look at that picture and it uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, of of uh, uh, both the scientific endeavor and the scientific pursuit, but also uh, my childhood fascination with a uh, with a prospect of of finding. Uh, alien life on a distant world, be it uh, Europa, Enceladus, Mars, Titan, or elsewhere. Yes, and uh, do I have like ten more minutes with you? I know. Sure. We're... Uh, yeah, absolutely. And 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 you know, I told you that that professor's name when we when we were talking about uh, the psychology uh, aspect of my my early career. Uh, I told you that I would remember it, and I remembered it. Almost exactly five minutes after uh, we <laughs> talked about it, and his name was Jack Baird, uh, and uh, yeah, he was just a a, a, a great uh, professor to to brainstorm with on these uh, on these far-reaching issues. Yeah, the brain is a miraculous tool, and then when you need it to work, it doesn't work. I, <laughs> yep. I don't I don't quite understand um, how that how that happens, but exploration, you know, eventually, I would hope. That we would go to Europa, not with a a orbiter. That's great, and and I would love to see that tomorrow. I know it's coming down the pipeline, but but I would love to see us explore Europa, the surface of Europa, the subsurface of Europa, the the intricacies of Europa, search for life on Europa. And you know, one of the interesting questions I have for you is that we can poll the American public on what they feel is important in a space program. Mm-hmm. In what they feel like their dollars should go to. Mm-hmm. And exploring the solar system for life ranks far above putting humans on Mars, ranks far above putting humans on the moon. In my most recent episode, 
um, one of the themes is why is it that every single time we change administrations, presidential administrations, why is it that our goals in space change? Right. So I wonder um, – and, and if people are interested in, in answering that question, hopefully my most recent episode will uh, illuminate that for you. But um, you know, why do you think we continue to pursue I, – I have my own suspicions, but why do you think we continue to pursue these ideas and yet it has been – what is it? 40 years now, I think? Yeah, about 40 years since we've actively searched for life in the solar system. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 really yeah, you're you're pulling on my heartstrings here because you're saying uh, exactly yeah, you're, you're you're preaching to the choir here and that uh, <laughs> um, you know it's um uh the I, I do a lot of public speaking I give a lot of talks and and uh, and it's wonderful uh, to me to to uh, see the excitement uh, that the American taxpayers have for the search for life beyond Earth, and and you know I've been pushing hard on uh, on this for for 20 years now, and and in particular on uh, trying to uh, get us all uh, to the surface of Europa or to the surface of Enceladus. Um, thankfully, we do have a mission that is that is selected that will go to the surface of of Titan, and that's a mission called Dragonfly. And if all goes well, we'll, we'll land on the surface of Titan in the mid-2030s. Uh, as you alluded to, we do have a mission that's greenlit to go out to Europa, to, to fly by Europa. That's the Europa Clipper mission, and I'm a, I'm a scientist on that, and that's a, that's a wonderful mission. Um, but we have no commitment to exploring Europa beyond that, um, that flyby mission. Uh, and that um, is largely um, uh, a combination of political will uh, and fluctuations therein, and then uh, um, scientific uh, interest uh, within the planetary science community. So the search for life falls within the planetary science um, uh, directorate of NASA. And there are many, many mouths to feed, and there are lots of interesting targets. And when you look at the history of solar system exploration, a lot of the missions work in service to understanding the the physics of solar system formation, the, the chemistry and geology of planet formation. And those are wonderful questions, and they're very important. You know, how did our solar system form? How did these planets form? And, and that is amazing. But one of the big questions that that then folds into is how did we get here? Um, how did Earth become habitable? Are other planets habitable? If so, how did they become habitable? And the capstone question almost always is, uh, is there life beyond Earth? Are we alone? And we have a very, very uh, limited record of exploring our solar system with that specific question in mind. Um, and, you know, thankfully we do, we are doing a, a good job with Mars. Uh, the Mars 2020 rover will seek out uh, rock samples that might uh, host biosignatures and, and uh, we'll bring those samples back to Earth for detailed analysis. But yeah, it saddens me. Um, you know, frankly, I, I led a, uh, an effort to put a lander on, on Europa and it was shot down by 
um, the scientific community uh, and the um, uh, and uh, changes in politics and um, and various other uh, leaders in the community. So I did the best I could. Is all I'm saying, Brendan. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, I feel your I feel uh, your heartbreak. So certainly uh, not as much as you, you feel know, your heartbreak. I, I, I did what I could, and I got a lot of grief for it. And I'm, I'm trying to pick myself up off the floor. But uh, yeah, I, I really uh, do get energized by the the support that uh, that the public. Uh, expresses for these things and and people should get involved um you know the in the next year or so well within the next year the national academy of sciences will solicit uh the scientific community and i'm hoping that it will be the broader scientific community not just the planetary science community you know we should have biologists at the table we should have oceanographers at the table when we think about uh, our exploration of the solar system and the search for life beyond Earth. Uh, and we should have the, the taxpayer having a voice, uh, uh, like you're saying, uh, about what they think is exciting. Um, you know, that's not to say that, that the scientific community shouldn't, you know, have the, the long arc of making sure that the key science questions are, are, uh, are prioritized. But, um, you know, I, I, I hope we can do more when it comes to the search for life beyond Earth, uh, because there there really isn't a technological limitation. Um, and uh, I, I describe a bit of this in in the book, where it's uh, you know there's no magic wand that we need to to get to the surface of Europa or any of these other worlds. And frankly, there's no magic wand that we need to to drill or melt through the ice and, and get into these oceans below. Uh, it's not like um, trying to get to the nearest star. You know, if I told you, Brendan, mm-hmm. design a spacecraft that can get us to Alpha Centauri within a century, you'd say, well, you know, you, you got to violate the laws of physics. We don't yes. know how to do right. that, right? We need, uh-huh. we, we need a magic wand. We need some warp drive or something that we have not yet invented. Getting to the surface of Europa or Enceladus um, uh, or Titan, is not that technologically hard. We have brilliant engineers at NASA, at JPL, at uh, Goddard Space Flight Center, at the Applied Physics Lab, um, and the engineers know how to do their job, and they, they've they've demonstrated that time and time again with these amazing missions. So we can do these missions technologically. We just need the the uh, the energy and the, and the endorsement from the taxpayers and from the scientific community and from the leadership uh, in Washington, both uh, within NASA and within the, the political community to really give us that kind of um, uh, that, that uh, um, Thomas Jefferson like, you know, core of discovery to, to, to go out and, and explore the solar system the way Thomas Jefferson uh uh, uh, set out the explorers to uh, explore the American West. Um, so yeah, again, there are many of us who are who are trying to to get this exploration done, and and uh, we we thank you and and your audience for for uh, uh, continuing to be excited and interested in it. Yeah, I I never hear anyone say, "Let's get humans on Mars" before they say, "Let's get to Europa." I mean, Europa and it's it's so interesting because Europa has almost become um, this this object of interest in spite of the direction that many space programs are going, right? Um, because they're not promoting Europa the same way they would promote Mars. 
but yet That's Europa right. Europa climbs to the top of interest still, and 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 um, not just Europa, but a lot of the as you were mentioning, a lot of the interesting. I mean, if if we're being honest, the satellites of the outer solar system are what got me interested in in planetary science in this sort Excellent. of field. Even though yeah. I don't do my my I don't primarily do research in planetary science. Um, it is an interest of mine, and I remember the the first thing that grabbed my attention. Uh, the first thing that grabbed my attention that I actually went out and did physics for is I saw that Miranda, mm-hmm. the the satellite Miranda, has a cliff. Uh, right. What is it called? Uh, uh, Valley yeah, Shrupes? Like is that right? Yeah, I, yeah, I forget exactly um, what the, the name is. Yeah, but it's like 12 uh, miles salt. high or something, yeah. right? Absolutely bizarre. And you could jump off it and you could be falling for on order 10 minutes or something like that. And then you would hit the ground going a speed of not even 100 miles per hour. Yeah. I think those numbers are ballpark correct. I did this calculation before. Um, and so the point is you could jump free fall for 10 minutes and then be caught by an airbag. I mean it's fascinating, right? Yeah. It captures yeah. The, the, the mind. And so I really hope that we can begin exploring these these worlds. And um, Kevin, there's like a million more things we could talk about, but we should probably uh, wrap it up. So I thank everyone for listening. I thank you for, for being here. Kevin, please tell people where they can get the book and where they can follow you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Brendan. It's been fun uh, talking with you, and I, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. Uh, the book is called Alien Oceans, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space. It comes out uh, uh, – it came out April 7th, and uh, it's available on Amazon and, and uh, or at your local bookstore if you're able to order through them. Uh, I definitely encourage that. Uh, and it's available on ebook and audio and all that fun stuff. And so uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to, to chat and uh, uh, appreciate all your efforts to get the word out, Brendan. Yeah, and all the links will be below for anyone listening. So just click on those and, and uh, check it out. Audiobook, ebook, whatever you, your preferred format. So um, thank you for listening and, and we're out. Please rate the show five stars if you enjoyed it. Rate the show, click the five star button, type grade A podcast, grade A. If you want to spell it E-H because you're Canadian, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. People do that sometimes. Appreciate the support. Please go on the Patreon and the PayPal if you enjoyed the show. We need money to make the show. I say it all the time. If you want us to continue producing science communication in the way that I do it, which I think is a pretty damn good way, if I may say so myself, then please support the Patreon or the PayPal. Okay, it helps make the show better. It helps make make the show more intricate. It helps me put more time into making the episodes. And it makes it a better experience for the listener. So throw us a dollar. Throw us two. Throw us eight dollars. Throw us three dollars and sixty-seven cents. Whatever you want to throw us. Don't throw us anything and keep listening for free. That's fine too. You do you, boo. All right, we're out.